This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This week, we're going to expand a little bit upon what we talked about last week when we were touching on print runs, COVID effects on sealed, etc., etc. We're actually going to take a deep dive at supplementals, including secret layers, which were something we kind of wanted to avoid just to see how the market settled out long term, what production issues, if any, arose, which we touched a little bit on last episode, we're going to go into again today. So let's get our supplemental palooza underway. Yeah, why not? So there's a lot that goes on with the supplemental set in regards to the magic ecosystem and not just the uh, card economy, but also playability and uh, effects on print run as we see now and previously, whereby certain things can overstep and just force out something from print run and delay and it creates this kind of interesting like churn effect and an interesting amount of speculative room to operate in when it comes to supplemental sets like a master set supplemental products like a commander product or a secret layer and then some things like the convention sets so those being san diego comic cons the hascon that was the name of the convention set right and like yep. the My Little Pony stuff, right? So there's a lot that falls under the supplemental uh, balloon, and it all impacts pretty interestingly, pretty uniquely, and uh, opens up these opportunities, like I mentioned. Then the the most common one and the easiest one to look at are things like master sets, full supplemental sets, be it an actual modern masters or masters 25, or like we just saw a remastered set for the first time in paper. These all have impacts on print runs of other things that are currently going on and also impact the game financially. And each one is different from the next, which is kind of interesting overall. You look at something like Jumpstart, which they printed. There was a print issue. They had to reprint, and eventually we got a second wave. But there, because of the issue with uh, the print run overall, now it's interjecting with a standard set. And the timeline for Jumpstart is completely thrown off, right? We've covered this a lot. So the finances around Jumpstart are completely different than something like Time Spiral Remasters, which just looks to be under underprinted on the whole in comparison to other master sets. So there's a unique opportunity for what you want to do with this stuff. Do you want to hold it in sealed or do you want to hold singles? And to me, when it comes to supplementals, on the whole, I'm actually for supplementals. I like when they do something like this because it offers everybody that plays the game or collects the game a product that might speak to them on a different level than something else would. So I'm, I've am i never really been into buying standard sets to crack packs or master's packs, just the crack packs. I'd rather draft master sets. And when it comes to standard, I just like having a box or two so I can play standard. I don't have to go out and buy a bunch of unique singles, and it gives me some fodder to trade with because, to me, that's also a big aspect of the playability of the game on a local level. Yeah, I could go out and buy all the singles I want, but my ability to interact with players is a lot more narrow when I don't have a binder for them to take a look at after a round because I still get asked that question a lot. Hey, do you have anything for trade? So buying those standard boxes offers me... A different avenue to work within the game and the social sphere but when it comes to supplementals on the whole you know just broad categorization how do you feel about them so i like i love supplementals i think even products like double masters which i love marrow's quote maybe this product just isn't for you uh <laughs> yeah, i i think everyone. products like I think products like that are great because it is one of the few products that, like you said, it offers something for your high-end collectors, your players. It satisfies every level of the magic econosphere. Your dumpster and divers. It, yeah, I, everyone can get what they want. And you know what? Pauper players love stuff like this because of the rarity shift. So not only do you get, you know, constructed format people, you even, like, you know, your modern legacy rest in peace, vintage, you know, whatever, you also get your pauper players. And I think it's interesting that that's one of the few times that those people get to feel like Watsi sees them on these supplementals. And I think that barring production issues, they generally have a very predictable 
financial path uh, in terms of like price cratering and then retracting back up. So it's something that if you're a little bit more savvy, you don't even have to be like an aficionado of MTG finance. You can just be the average MTG finance guy and be like, you know what? These thought seasons and iconic masters for $13 are way too cheap. Yes. So I'm going to pick some up because it should be more money. And I think that that is an extra avenue that supplementals give that standard products don't because you don't have to read the meta with supplemental products the way you do with standard a lot of times. Mm -hmm. You can tell immediately this card is good. This has an established track record. You know, this Tarmogoyf has seen play for eons. You know, as soon as six months after Future Sight came out and it stopped being a bulk rare, that card's never not seen play. And I think that that's really good. And it touches on, like you said, the social sphere of it because it does give you the draft environment. It gives you the constructed environment and it gives you the trade avenue as well because these are cards that, don't get me wrong, the new standard sets trade well. But the new supplemental sets, when they come out, trade incredibly well. Everyone has them in their binders because they know everybody wants them and they're more than willing to offload whatever they have that they don't need for something they do need. Mm -hmm. So you can get the opportunity where you have the guy that's like, I have, you know, this old border chalice of the void and I've got 10 EDH decks that I need a coalition relic in. Great. I will trade you, you know, eight coalition relics for that chalice of the void and you both leave happy. And, you know, you can get stuff like that. And I think that it is probably the most necessary set type for magic's continued existence Mm -hmm. because it's the main avenue for high dollar reprint equity. And I think that, you know, the reserve list is the reserve list and everyone hems and haws about how awful it is, how the game's too expensive. These supplemental sets keep that price down. Yes. Yeah. But the way they've been doing them lately, they have enough chase cards to satisfy your high end. You have your foil old border true names, old border foil ponders, any of the old border cards really are just good chase. And there's plenty of low hanging fruit there as well, which I'll touch on later. But I, I think they're great. Yeah. Uh, and the the only thing for me that really s- makes or breaks a supplemental isn't the fact that it's supplemental, that it does interject on printing timelines. Uh, it can suffer its uh, from its own set of issues. There's really just whether or not a supplemental is subjectively good or objectively good. And I think that's a lot of what people are kind of looking at in regards to uh, both the secret layers and the master sets is some are subjectively good and some are objectively good and thus that shifts the market on each one of those products and it's something you have to be very aware of when you're going to be moving into some of these sets you know buying into ultimate masters or time spiral remasters uh day of basically as soon as you could get your boxes on the cheap for immediate flips because the set is those sets are objectively good that is you know great but then you look at something like masters two five and you weren't able to do that because that set was objectively good. It was not, uh, sorry, it was, uh, yeah, it was objectively good. It was not subjectively good because there was not a lot of hits overall in that set. It was meant to kind of relive the history of magic. And similarly from the Vault 20 was objectively good. But that set, much like A25 and a number of others that are subjective, are 99% air and 1% Jace the Mind Sculptor. And that is kind of where, to me, the division of supplementals really lies. And so when you want to look at them as finance vehicles, something to either flip or to sit on, you really need to take into consideration, okay, is this objective or subjective? There are things that blur the lines, like the Seb secret layer. You know, that appeals to somebody who likes Seb art, but a lot of people like Seb art, right? So while art is objective... That is kind of a subjectively good secret layer because of how easy it would be to turn that stuff around. Similarly, the Godzilla lands. Yeah. There are people, I think another... There are oh, people, sorry, go ahead. There are people out there that like the Toho stuff. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. And there's just not as many of them that like Toho compared to Seb. Well, I think it's like looking at the Walking Dead secret layer versus the Fetchland secret layer, right? Yeah. Everyone was in an uproar when Walking Dead came out. They're like, these cards are too good. Well, that card, that secret layer ended up being subjectively good because it has a couple cards that see play in humans and the rest is whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Fetchlands are obviously just objectively insane. Yeah. Fetchlands, Fetchlands are never bad. 
ever. And if you can get limited run fetch lands, and this has been proven time and again, be it set foils, expeditions, whatever, it's obviously just better. No matter what, that's good. Yeah. That That is just always a good box set to have. And I think you're touching on a really good point here that, you know, with the master set, sometimes just due to the theme of the set, uh, it may just be subjectively good out of the gate. Like you said, A25 was honestly one of the most fun draft environments I've ever played. Yeah. I, the set by no means was, you know, absolutely nutter butter financial vehicle, no. uh, but it was really fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll give another and, really good example of uh, objective versus subjective from the vaults, right? I mentioned from the vault yeah. 20, okay? Subjectively, from the vaults dragons, good, because it was the first one. First one. Yeah. It set the trend for what this product would be, but the overall list of cards in this uh from the vault are objectively bad except for it's so bad except for kokusho yeah and that's just edh playability if they kept reprinting kokusho in modern sets then the only reason from the vault would be would even be in the conversation of a good product at all is because it was the first it set the precedent for this product so it's kind of lent this subjectivity on the other hand yeah. objectively good from the vaults Exiled and Relics. Oh god, Relics Those are so incredibly good. powerful. Uh, yeah. Exiled has Berserk, it has Channel, Gifts Ungiven, Lotus Petal, Mystical Tutor, Necro, Divining Top, Skull Clamp, Strip Mine, Tinker, Trinisphere. These are all incredibly good, incredibly powerful cards that define formats and like the From the Vault says, were banned at one point in time. Now, a banned card doesn't mean it's great because Curd Ape is in here. Like, yeah. that's a good creature, overpowered then, not great now. But... This is not the 99 to 1 that I mentioned before, Air to Jace the Mind Sculptor. This is a really yeah. good set. Relics has reserveless, uh, more reserveless cards on it. Karn, is, uh, Karn Silver Golem, Mox Diamond, Memory Jar are in here. You have uh, the first Sol Ring uh, foil. Yep. They put in this set before <clears throat> the before Mirrored and Besiege block was even, uh, it was announced but not previewed. A card from the upcoming block in Sword of Body and Mind. You could acquire a card from an upcoming set before it was printed in From the Vault Relics. Aether Vials yeah. in here, Isochron Scepter. You know, objectively good cards. This is objectively a good From the Vault. Yeah. And I think that finding that line of this is objective versus subjectively good is. It's important, and I will say that just because something is subjectively good doesn't mean it is less good than, no. you know, from the vault relics. Because based on your local market, if that's what you're catering to, well, I mean, I need more World Gorger dragons because that's what they want. Or I need more of the from the vault thunder dragon, which was, that art was questionable. That was silly. That's um, so but I think that that's something that, you know, when you're looking at these products is important for your evaluation of it. Yes. Uh, whereas, you know, you touched on, and we were talking about this before we started recording, uh, you know, Time Spiral Remastered really is a one-card booster pack with 14 bonus slots is what it's shaping up to be. And are you comfortable playing that one-card lottery yeah. is what it comes down to. Yeah. And so the, this product in and of itself creates that conversation or should necessitate that conversation of if I'm going to buy it, what is my goal here? Am I going to try and flip immediately to try and recoup, like flip everything from the set and the uh, the old borders, or am I going to sit on it and ride that train and eggs and you know pull my ripcord in a couple of weeks when everybody's out of stock and I can churn these sealed products? You know that's part of every conversation you need to have with yourself when you're looking at at specs. Is what is my expected outcome here? How long am I going to sit on this? Where is my churn? what is my future for this this product as a whole and between secret like the glut of secret layers that we've had and time spiral remastered you know these conversations are quite important especially when a lot of this comes down to recently subjectivity you know i, I think one of the, another good example and it kind of leans on this fact where it really is like pseudo art dependent is the party hard rock harder or whatever the um the metal art secret layer is yeah yep they i 
Watsy claims they picked quote-unquote metal art. Well, you know what? They picked a subgenre of metal that caters to that art style to uh, to use for those cards and color schemes. It doesn't even apply to the majority of the metal genre. Of yeah. Anything that you can label as metal, that art style is extremely narrow. And it is entirely subjective about whether or not people are going to want to play those cards at all or even see them. But then you look at Secret Lair Black History Month and all those cards are bangers. Yeah. Every one of them. They are just objectively good. I think it's also worth noting that especially in some of the recent supplemental products, uh, like Modern Horizons, for mm -hmm. example, when they have a mixture of new cards and reprints, which, mm -hmm. you know, again, is kind of a new thing with Modern Horizons, uh, it's a little bit of both. And those are the types of things that require a little bit more format knowledge yep. of like what's actively happening in them, as opposed to like a Time Spiral Remastered, where you can just have historical context. Yeah. And that'll put those cards into it or just know that like, you know, uh, Rare Foil Go Burr. Like, obviously that works. Yeah. But I think it's going to be interesting to see Modern Horizons 2 because we have Modern Horizons 1 as an example. We know that, you know, that set was one of the most poorly designed in terms of fair uh, and not broken sets that's ever been printed, Hogak. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see as more of these supplemental sets come out what's going to happen with them because we had the from the or the secret lair where they said hey by the way uro's in this but we're banning it yeah and i'm actually interested to see how that type of design is going to affect the value of supplemental products because secret layers by and large from what we've seen are a fine hold yeah you can hold them for a few months and sell them for a 2x at least What's going to happen when, you know, the absolute banger in the secret lair is banned before the product gets to your hands? What's going to happen with Modern Horizons 2 based on how Modern Horizons 1 was? Yeah. I assume we're still going to see the insane rush at the beginning, but that, you know, three to six month refractory period afterwards, what that what's that going to look like now? Yeah. Now that we know to keep an eye out for these cards. I actually have a note specifically at Modern Horizons 1 in comparison to something like Masters 25, which I'm going to continue to harp on, and you'll hear why in a moment. So Modern Horizons, to me, represented strong cards in a strong limited product, meaning both limited in print run and limited in playstyle, right? They wanted to blow the doors off this set the first <laughs> time they did it, and like they just incinerated the doors. That product was nuts. And yes, they had to ban cards out of it, but it's because they incinerated those doors. They pushed way too hard with that product for the first time, and you got cards like Hogak and Astrolabe and Urza out of it. But in all honesty, if those cards weren't that strong, you would wind up with Masters 25, which was janky cards in a janky draft environment. And you didn't really want to have that with a supplement that's supposed to go direct into, at the time, one of your most popular formats. So to me, that represents the good part of supplementals and a, and a set that I would like to have owned and sealed versus one that I would not like to have owned and sealed. You know, I'll Masters, agree with that. Modern Horizons 1 versus uh, A25. When it comes to Horizons 2, I expect it to be more of Modern Horizons 1, but maybe toned down a little bit because obviously they made mistakes, right? They got to learn from it. <clears throat> we know we're getting the fetch lands somewhere, either in the rare slot, maybe the mythic slot. And there does exist the opportunity for the set to fall flat from a limited environment, but still stand tall from a strong cards in a strong set. I don't think we're going to get janky cards in a janky set. My biggest fear with Modern Horizons 2 is they're going to do the knee-jerk Amonkhet reaction. I don't think they're going to, but I don't trust Wizards of the Coast not to fuck this up, so... Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, I understand that. And, like, only spoilers were t will tell, right? Yeah. I, I, like I said, I just had a note about MH1, and my expectations for MH2 are going to be the same based on what I saw, which was this was a good supplemental set all around for playability, for the hold, and for, like, uh, S-sealed and singles. As yeah. opposed to something like uh, A25 or, uh, is it 
Modern Masters 2, which had Karn and Tarmogoyf and some other odds and ends, but it's not 3 with the fetch lands. So it's like, you got to balance your stuff and try and figure out where your janky environments are and aren't going to be. Similarly, I kind of put Time Spiral Remastered alongside A25 because the other cards in that pack, they're not janky, but they craft a very specific draft environment. And outside of that, there are some great playables, but it's just going to be a hold for that one card. So to me, it kind of represents a bad supplemental set. You're, you're effectively just playing the lottery on the entire worth of that box. And yeah. to me, I don't like that. I, you know, the secret layers that I bought were the objectively, I, in my mind, the objectively good ones. Kaleidoscope Killers, I think I have the Ooze ones, the one or two yeah. of the Oozes, and um, a Bob Ross one. That, that one is personal. I want Bob Ross. Oh, one, right? yeah. Bob Ross is great. Yeah, I don't own many other... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm getting the BHM ones as well. Because to me, those entire sets without the stained glass walker, or in the case of the Bob Ross one, the stained glass, uh, or sorry, the alt art evolving wilds represent good holds. It's not the library, sorry, the the lottery ticket inside. It's the yeah. other cards in the secret layers that make it worthwhile to me. Similarly, the master sets that I have a little bit of stock on, they represent strong cards in a strong environment that help prop up existing and growing formats. They're not janky cards from a janky environment that prop up a format with you know what is it mono what is it a a25 it's crypt and mono drain chase yeah sure that's yeah and, and moving forward when it comes to these supplementals i'm still going to cast you know the same discerning eye at them is this set worthwhile for me to own an entire box of is every is are the majority of the cards in the pack going to be worth something now or later if i flip now or i hold or i crack for singles because i want to play stuff etc where is the value that's going to lie but none of that really changes the fact that i do believe that supplementals on the whole are great for the game one of the things we haven't touched on are the commander decks and those when it comes to power level and their impact definitely ebb and flow sometimes yeah. watsy commits Prince uh, partners i was gonna say an oopsie and true name nemesis but that was me you know people targeted the grixis deck circa 2015 i think for true yep. name nemesis because it was a legacy power level card and you know that deck you know moved out of stock immediately rest of the deck was great because it had baleful strikes and toxic deluge which are highly playable yep. in commander and for the most part these decks generally speaking prop up the format they change the format almost every time because they give you something new and unique and interesting to do with the format and the cards contained yeah. within sometimes it's just necessary reprints and the rest of that kind of falls flat looking at you frailies but it's still a great way to bring people in or help infuse cards into a collection that are powerful representative of a format and to the best of my knowledge really just represent a great like element of the game. Watsy's giving people something that play Commander to look at every year, to look forward to, to expect, to get excited about. It's not just, oh, I've got to crack packs or buy singles to get a handful of cards. It's, I can buy a brand new deck that I like, that fits what I'm going to do, and I can either uh, adjust it, play it as is, or maybe just break it apart and put some of the various cards into other decks I own, and it is a product for me. And it's, it's interesting because it kind of occupies... You know, once upon a time, people were looking at pre-coms in this way, which for those of you that don't know, uh, JIT was in yep. basically a commander deck at the time. And Avatar as product, was yeah. another big one. Whoa. Uh, at this point, we've kind of evolved past the point where it's one card in the deck since it's designed for a specific format yes. rather than yep. built out of cards of a set. But I think that you know, commander decks are also, they occupy an interesting spot because even the ones that are bad for me occupy, I want to hold this. Yeah. Because it's something that you can have as a trade that you can just, you know what? It's ready to play. You're a new player. Uh, you know, I'm going to help you out and throw this at you for a discount. And I think that they're very much for me, even the misses yeah. are something I want to hold sealed. Oh, absolutely. Specifically, even the misses only with the commander decks. Because it is something that, like you said, it's ready-made. 
it's you can take it and go right away. And I, you know, there's one of my play groups that I'm in that we, you know, every now and then we have these pre-cons still assembled and we'll just oh, yeah, like, yeah. you know, by the end of the night, we may not be able to see straight, but we're going to sit there and play with these pre-con commander decks and have a time doing it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, those occupy a very unique spot in that supplemental product mm -hmm. because of the ready-made playability. Yes. And that's the type of thing that I think is just generally good to have. Mm -hmm. So I think this, the commander sets are emblematic of what I want supplementals to be, which is highly accessible, easy to understand, immediately impactful product. You don't have mm. to dig for the meaning behind it. You don't have to dig to try and get your hands on it. You don't have to to dig to try and make it work in your collection or your financial forecasting. Everything yeah. you need is just right there in front of you. And from the second commander deck printing onward, I have bought a case, uh, like which is just one of each and set it aside. It's the only supplemental product I bought every single one of, including the Brawl decks, yeah. to just set aside for later because of how important and how they just always represent, how important they are to the game and how and what they represent financially, which is just consistent gainers. The only thing I might eat my hat on is the fact that I have a bajillion of the Grixis deck with True Name Nemesis, but again, like I said, that deck is also kind of buoyed by the fact that it has Toxic Deluge and Baleful Strix in it. And until they uh, put Baleful Strix in Modern Horizons 2 and let us play that card in Modern, I'm not going to lose my ass on it. But, yeah. you know, I was paying Walmart MSRP for them. So I'm not out too much. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I'm kind of getting to the point where Secret Lairs occupy that for me, too. Mm hmm where even the, you know, like, this is a dud. This this is not good. This is not a great secret layer. It's not going to be great. They're still proving to be a good mid to long-term investment with your yeah. six-month-plus turnaround. So, you know, they take up a little bit less space, too, which is also definitely Choice, yeah. a plus. Um, because, you know, you can buy a secret layer for 30 bucks and get 10 of those for the, you know, 300 and that takes up the same amount of space as three boxes of whatever standard product that probably isn't going to be worth anything, you know, depending on what's in it. And I think that that's something that very much for me, I'm like, you know what, this is, this is great. I'll take it. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll sit on 10 of these and be fine with it. It doesn't matter to me. And I think that that's the type of thing that is very much going in secret layers favor and I'm hoping that that shapes up to be the new norm for supplemental products. Because we haven't had, you know, to my recollection, a true long-term dud in supplemental products for a while now. Do you, do you can you remember one? Um, when you discount Masters sets, uh, and, okay, so this is kind of interesting, because recently we've had the Super Spike in From the Vaults. But yeah. I can point to From the Vault Angels, From the Vault Realms, From the Vault Destruction as duds. Yeah. But they were only rescued recently by uh, Alpha Investments' charge at them. He, you know, he mentioned them as an investment vehicle or whatever, so his viewers went after them. Then a number of other people in the MTG Finance sphere followed suit, and so they got rescued. Yeah. Rescued by that. But aside from those and a handful of awkward master sets, no, I can't really point to anything else that was a, uh, a dud financially. In my, and I'm, I'm glad you, you talked about the secret layers because when I look at some things like Box of Rocks, to me, that's just a miss overall. Because, one, I, get, I appreciate the Charlie Brown joke. Yeah. I do. But, like, to me, that was just a swing and a miss uh, on a product overall. Like, from name to, to, to targets. I understand why they did it, I get it, and I understand that it, that it was financially viable, but in my mind, it was just so low effort that I really thought it was just going to be a miss overall. But not yeah. even, I don't even think that stuff has been a dud. Uh, uh, maybe Secret Layer Red, the, the boom, kaboom, whatever that one was with a bunch of yeah. goblins in it, because 
some of them were legacy playable. Some of them just aren't playable. I was looking through secret layers before we started talking, but that's about it. Like, in all honesty, there haven't been a whole lot of misses compared to the number of successes. They are definitely batting over 500 in regards to yeah. secret layer success, and for the most part, supplemental success overall in the grand scheme of things. And you can't bat 1,000. You just can't. It's yeah. never going to happen. So you can't sit there and try and find fault with supplemental products as a whole when there are a, full, when there are a handful of duds, especially when it comes to things like the master sets where they also have to create a draft environment around them. Some of them are meant to be anniversary things. Some of them are meant to be like cube editions. So there are going to be these janky sets overall. Yeah. And so again, and to your point, yeah, I can find a few duds, but that is an under, like a, a non-majority number of duds. Yeah, and I I think it's also the type of thing that even with, especially on secret layers, because it is a relatively new product. Yeah. Uh, I am comfortable actually grabbing even the dud ones and sitting on them for a little bit just to see how it develops. Because at this point, even the crappy from the vaults, your dragons, your angels, all that stuff sealed are still worth a mint mm -hmm. over what retail was on those things. Yeah. I own... From the Vault was actually the first supplemental I started buying every single one of, and I had a handful of opportunities to buy dragons, but I never bought it because I thought, why would I? All these cards are absolute trash, but I never really paid mind to the fact that it paved the way for a very long time. I didn't. I never thought yeah. of it like that. And then as it slowly started to creep up towards $100, I was like, why? And then I realized it's because it's the first one. It set the precedent. Yeah, I believe even down to the presentation of that secret layer, everything about it is different. It's just like the first dual decks. They're not yeah. great, but because the presentation of those first dual decks is, are so different than the rest of them, they hold a little, a little bit more of a premium, especially the early ones, not just because of the content, but because of what they yeah. represent. Compared to the commander decks, which are just great overall. And yeah, sure, the, uh, the first ones back in like 2012 or whatever, for the most part, are worth more because they're the first but other than that they're just still bangers like the rest of them so you don't get yeah. caught by buying any of them over time and i think that that's you know i hope that's the way that we start to see things go with supplemental sets mm -hmm. um we'll see how it goes next time we get a master set if we get another master set they're discontinued. We're never doing them again. We're not doing masterpieces, and we're not doing mythic editions either. But lo and behold, we've been doing them. They yeah. just call them something else. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if they <laughs> want to keep making remastered sets for paper like they did for Moto just to get more cards into the hands of players, I'm all for it. And whatever they gimmick they want to do for it, again, you know, go for it. Because it'll do the same thing that Time Spiral Remastered did, which is that the cards in the core set are going to be extremely yep. accessible for a fairly decent amount of time, and then the, the ones that require, or not require, the ones that are going to buoy as expected because they're commander staples or modern staples, etc., will buoy, and you'll be fine. Yeah. You just have to think about, is this a product I want to sit on <clears throat> because I can flip it? Is it a product I want to crack because I can flip it? Or is it a product that I want to buy singles for because I want to play these cards and I don't want to, you know, play the lottery? And yeah. All are viable and all speak to the fact that supplemental sets on the whole for the game are generally pretty good. Not in terms of quality, but just for the game and the ecosystem that Magic the Gathering represents. Everything underneath it. So, yeah. For me, in regards to supplementals, I think I've said, you know, everything Same. I need to. I, I, like I said, I have my own uh, that I hold f for reasons, you know. It yeah. sounds like you have your own too, and I think every, if, you have any kind of sealed product storage, you should always look at at supplemental sets, no matter what it is, as holds for the long term. And, and do your yeah. due diligence and decide whether or not every supplemental that hits is for you. And it is tiring. We get so yeah, many supplemental products. Awful. So many. But at the same time, you can just kick out something small like Secret Layers and say, hey, that's not for me. I prefer the draft environments and go after those. Yeah. Or, hey, I like the commander stuff, which is what I do. So I get the commander stuff. You know, it's all... It's all viable, and it just needs to fall into your plan and what you want to do. And for yep. the foreseeable future, these are the kinds of supplementals that we're going to get. They, they may phase out one of these for something else. It doesn't matter. But again, the supplementals will hit. They'll be great for the game and the playability as a whole, and they will be a financial vehicle. You just need to, need to figure out if it falls within your plan, your timetable, you know, your churn model. Picks. Picks. Yeah.
right, I think, yeah. did you go first last week? Did I go first? I think you went. It doesn't matter. My pick's been lurking in the shadows. All right. And that's a good it. pun, so I'm taking my pick. <laughs> my pick for the week is Lurking Predators, a card from Magic 2010 reprinted twice, once in Jumpstart and once in Commander 2016. It's a card near and dear to my heart because it cheats really big creatures into play. Really big. And you can see over time, you know, the, the trend line is as such overall that we just see a lot of growth and some retraction. 2016, like I said, we got the commander reprinted, it dips down, and then eventually picks up over time. This recent spike in 2020, I kind of discount because it retraces immediately, but what we're seeing right now, uh, this gain starting, you know, in 2021-ish, this is what I'm looking at. This is why I took this card off my list of, you know, backburner cards and moved it up to the front. So, this card has been on my list since uh, November, so you know, about four months I've been tracking it. Okay. At that point, Card Kingdom was buying 16 for $3. TCG Player had 78 copies at a market of 646 uh, at LP or better. As of me uh, choosing this, Card Kingdom's buying 19 at $4, so that's a cre- an increase in both directions. And Card Kingdom has 61 at 506 market, which is a little interesting that there are fewer on the market and the price drop. But again, I've, I've talked about this with other cards before. To me, that just speaks to people of finally attempting to exit a card that they've been sitting on for a while because it was stagnant. As we saw in the price, the price graphs, and I'll bring it up again, this card was stagnant from, let's say, July 2020 all the way up to January. You know, So that's a five, six month period where it just does nothing. And as it starts to gain, people just want to exit out of it to to move into something else, you know, reclaim a little bit of that uh, stashed cash. So uh, what does this card do? Like I said, it cheats big fatties into play. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card, put it on the battlefield. Otherwise, you may put that card onto the bottom of your library. So essentially, whatever is on top can just hit play or be moved to the bottom to help you sort through and just hit some gas, right? So this is essentially eminently playable in every creature deck in EDH that plays green. Um, But you do want to look for, or look at this card when you have both a critical mass of creatures and a critical mass of creatures with large CMCs to take advantage of this free cast. You know, you don't want to be playing it alongside a bunch of little elves or Simic creatures because they cost between like one and three, whatever, just cast them, right? So within the format itself, over time, this only gets better because creatures overall get, get better and that that is irrelevant to their overall size or whether or not they have an enter the battlefield effect, trigger, what have you. So similarly to Elvish Piper, Lurking Predators places the creature directly into play, which means you miss out on cast triggers like you get with the Eldrazi. So it's a little bit at odds with decks that want to take advantage of that kind of effect. However, cast triggers being a little bit safer than ETBs, it's still a guaranteed trigger in both directions, both the cast and the ETB, because Lurking Predators actually saves you from counter magic once lurking predators is on the battlefield you can't counter that creature it's going to come in so you're going to get that etb trigger right and it also saves you an incredibly large amount of mana across a game it costs six but if you're just consistently flipping five six sevens eights and nines you're going to save a ton of mana (laughs) across that game and you're going to be able to get to the board a lot faster and a lot larger than other people will so on its own, highly playable if your average CMC for your creature is rather high and your creature count is rather dense, like I mentioned. Again, this is something I'd expect to see in like a big gruel deck or a big mono green deck, not something that's looking to just play a lot of smaller creatures. And, you know, you look at this and you say, okay, I've got to play off the top of my deck, what can I do? Well, you can actually set up this trigger with things like Worldly Tutor, Congregation of Dawn, uh, Huatuo, which is from one of the portal sets, I believe. And yeah. one of the top generals associated with this card, <clears throat> if I could pull it up. Um, Huatua is a 1-2 for 3, 1 double green. Put target creature card from your graveyard on top of your library. Activate this ability only during your turn before attackers are declared. But it doesn't say as a sorcery. So if anybody mucks around in your uh, in your pre-combat main, you can in response put it on top, right? So okay. you can always respond to the Lurking Predator's trigger. Even Sensei's <clears throat> Divining Top allows you to set this up. Yeah, you want to play this in black or green? Well, you can Volrath Stronghold or uh, Haunted Highway, whatever it is, your creature back on top for Lurking Predators. It's a really tricky card. Uh, 
which keeps you from playing a scripted game and allows you to play a more reactive game, which I think is uh, oft overlooked with a card like this. I have a side note about playability. This also makes Riku of the Two Reflections incredibly strong, as Riku only looks to see that the creature enters the battlefield. It doesn't care if it was cast. As long as the creature enters the battlefield, Riku can copy it. So Riku works incredibly well with this. Um, and overall, I, I understand why basically every commander associated with this card on Wreck, and I'll bring this up, is basically... A big dumb green red x creature because like i said i'd expect this in mono green or big rule but i don't understand why this isn't played nearly as much as it <clears> is when a lot of people are looking to play big dumb creatures in edh so my timeline on this so this card did suffer from that q3 q4 edh law which i mentioned before and that essentially halted demand and thus growth and we're finally seeing this crest past its all-time high without a sign of retracing so with the reprint in 26 commander 2016 we did see a bit of stagnation as supply met demand but so but we're so far past that point in time that without another large cent printing this should retain its current market price slope so again i expect continued growth recently bias numbers met the open market floor and if both continue to rise in tandem like they have been i would expect that if you were to buy in below eight dollars you're able to get out in about six months i think that is our minimum however with the recent rise in this card overall and the increase in density of good green creatures good big creatures that can slide into green based edh decks any kind of content driven or centered around this card driven to or centered around this card will raise the price of this card faster and you might be able to churn more effectively right now on tcg player i think the prices go up towards ten dollars like not quickly just you know over time it stretches you can get up to ten dollars and if you filter for four or more you can almost every copy is below eight dollars so like i said per my projection as long as you're able to buy in under eight dollars which you can right now it is not that difficult you should still be able to get out in about six months at a profit to buy a list I like this card because it is literally one of the most green cards that ever greened in EDH, and it's not close. Um, it does everything you want. It cheats big dumb creatures into play. It messes with top deck manipulation. It cheats small creatures into play, whatever you want. It just gives you free card advantage, mm -hmm. which is something that green actually has a lot of if you know where to look. Yes. And I think that this, you know, being at six mana, it's a little cost prohibitive for, like, the competitive EDH scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, I think that, you know, it does one of the most casual, friendly things that you can look for in Magic. So, like you said, unless we see a large set reprint, I don't see this trajectory changing. You may stagnate for a little bit yep. again, but we're not going to go down. No. And as, you know, more people get more invested in EDH, start building more decks... They're going to need more copies. So I think this is, you know, even if it's something that you get just to throw in a trade binder for when paper events happen again, that's a fine place to put it because someone at the GP is going to need this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one thing I can't speak to, and it, it, I, it's difficult to source out because it happened so long ago, is right. this card went from nothing to everything in EDH. And we're talking that jump happened at the beginning of the format where people were discovering what to do, what they wanted to do. And we weren't afforded all these great ramp pieces, all these great uh, and efficient creatures. And what causes this stagnation for like two to three years in price overall and seemingly demand? It's not like creatures didn't get better, and it's not like we didn't get continuously, increasingly costed creatures over time. But what, you know, kind of blocked this card in that time span that wasn't just those two reprints like i mentioned c16 and, and jumpstart it's not like if you forest and soul ring on turn one and then you turn to play a land kadama's reach you can untap on turn three and play this card and that's not out of the question for a regular edh game like yeah it takes a lot of cards but once that happens you're on six money you can just be slamming whatever you want off the top of your library and it's not like that is an ineffective or inefficient line of play yeah you know i get it if you're not playing large creatures but it seems like as you look through all the supplemental products that are meant to handle edh and even a lot of the standard sets and you look at what's on the top end 
this card supports all of that, and I don't understand why there was this kind of just drop-off in visibility of this card. It was incredibly powerful before, and it only gets more powerful over time, and once people kind of come back and remember that, I think that's where we see it. I just don't know what outshined it, because to see this stagnation, it seems like something had to come into play and really you know, muscle in for this room. It's like tooth and nail. That's an amazing card, and you don't see it as much as you would expect to in EDH. Yeah. I think it still has a decent amount of, a decent percentage, because it's a a, a one-card win combo. Yeah. Well, at least you can one-shot somebody. You get Xenogod and Blightsteel Colossus or whatever. But yeah, 7k dex, 3% for tooth and nail. 2%, 4.7k dex for Lurking Predators. And aside from the the print numbers, because Tooth and Nail was original mirrored in Modern Masters, and Larking Predators was in uh, M10, which is like the New World Order for everything. Like print numbers aside, I just don't understand why this card is like as stagnant as it is. It just that seems incorrect. It just seems like people don't remember what this card was and can be. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, if anyone watching this remembers, tweet us. Let us know if there is a card that we're missing, please. All right, so I, I have a bonus pick. So I'm going to give the bonus pick first oh, before no. my real pick. Before we talk the about bonus the low-hanging fruit? We're going to talk about the low-hanging fruit, but that's not the bonus pick. Okay. That's that's the real one. Well, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. Maybe it's both. Um, so we mentioned this earlier about how you know Rudy made the video about From the Vault and how some of those have been saved. I've been watching a lot of the old foils that have from the vault printings and okay. seeing how the prices correlate everything else. So I picked this card previously on the cast in like year one, and it was from the vault Tangle Wire. Ah, so okay. the Nemesis foil has quadrupled over the last few months from about $50 to 200 low for the foil printing. The from the vault printing is still sitting pretty at sub $20. In fact, on all of TCG, there are 10 total listings with 16 copies that top out at $25. Uh, this is something that, as these old star foils move, you'll start to look for the other unreprintable versions of the foil. This Tangle Wire, being from the vault, is not getting printed again. It's from 20, which, as we mentioned, was one of the, like, a little bit less good ones. So there's probably not a ton out there that are unopened. You know, your your hits in this were like Thran Dynamo, Jace, uh, Dark Rit, which has had better printing since. That's just not a. Uh... Yeah, there's 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 nothing in this one. No, Ink Eyes, obviously. Sorry, how could I forget that? Uh, but you know, there's not a whole lot of high value items in this, so it's not like you're risking someone cracking a bunch of from the vault twenties to tank the value. But I think it's you know an interesting opportunity because Card Kingdom prior to us recording this, had one copy for $12, but someone scooped it up. So there's not a whole lot of copies of this out there. It's a good opportunity. That's your free pick. The real pick, and this is a little bit more in-depth discussion, Time Spiral Remastered Dovin's Veto. So I picked this basically to highlight some of the low-hanging fruit that's out there, that for collectors... Once supplies of this start to dry up and we get an idea of how narrow the print run is, which I fully expect it to be pretty narrow, uh, cards like this that see constructed play, that see EDH play, that occupy a niche in terms of reprints, you know, this is plain specific. Uh, this had a promo reprint before. We've got a few different versions. This is something that has the opportunity to rise in price very quickly. And it's something that as my lovely co-host touched on before we went live, there's immediate opportunity here on places like Card Kingdom. So right now, Card Kingdom has X20 available for $4. If you go to TCG and look for quantity of four or more, the bare minimum to get a playset from one vendor is $7. So this has been restocked already today. Uh, Coalition Relic is another example. These are things that you can get early on that had a price point previously, that have collectability, that similarly to when I picked Divert, uh, the invocation a while ago. And, you know, my reason was this is a low-hanging fruit. When people start collecting this, this is going to be something with a better percentage ceiling than, like, 
your pact of negations because they started out higher. Dovin's veto occupies that spot of here is a low hanging fruit with a much higher ceiling once people start collecting these. So getting in now, getting it as a throw in in a trade, getting it, you know, just going to a draft if your LGS is having those and just like, hey, does anybody have any Dovin's vetoes? I'll swap you straight across for a set or FNM or whatever is a good opportunity to get a good long term return on this. Uh, That's for specifically cards like Dovin's veto, which are on the lower price point end. You're looking at about a 12 month turnaround plus on this, Mm -hmm. but Getting it at a dollar, I would think in about 12 months, you'll easily see just a random Card Kingdom buy list of $2, $3, no problem. So, and that may be contracted to be a little bit shorter just because if we get an idea that, hey, we're not reprinting this again, you get one run and you're done. Yep. Uh, suddenly we're at, you know, that's it. It's dried up and the price starts to go up a little bit higher. Yep. And Touching on, you know, what we said in the episode where supplemental sets have that known refractory period where you hit three months, you've got your low, and six months, you start to see the recovery. On the lower end stuff, it's usually a little bit longer, which is why I have the 12-month run on the Time Spiral remastered version of Dovin's Veto. Now, the interesting thing is the foils on this card are $40 and Card Kingdom sold out at $60. Nobody has a play set of this. Nope. And I think that this is another opportunity where if you can get some of these Time Spiral remastered cards that are low-hanging fruit on the foils, that are your $30 to $40 foils, you've got a really good opportunity to turn it around in about 6 to 12 months. So I just wanted to point that out as something that, you know, Dovin's Veto highlights the nature of the pick for me, basically. That this is something that is a very low-hanging fruit, that mm-hmm. has a very good room for growth that just occupies a perfect spot on set release weekend for you to say, you know what, I'm going to scoop up a few of these from a vendor like Card Kingdom, or I'm going to scoop up a few of these from multiple vendors on TCG mm-hmm. and just see where it goes. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's well, right. When we talked about this, I think like midweek when we were ruminating and you told me you wanted Dovin's Veto and I asked, do you want foil or do you want regular? And we, we hemmed and hawed about which one would be the better pick overall in the long run because we really didn't know the price trajectory of the foils. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what you're going to touch on. And a lot of everything you talked about is exactly what we talked about in the, in the pod discord on Friday when we noticed that CK was underserving the price of a lot of cards within the main set. And TCG player was underserving the cards, in, a lot of the cards in the, uh, the t- the what, time shifted sheet or whatever it is, whatever yeah, it's called right, and how the price on a lot of the time shifted cards on TCG player didn't make sense and still, uh, still don't. You have gluts around certain numbers and it doesn't quite make sense as to why a lot of these cards are bucketed where they are, and there exists a lot of opportunity for the purchase of non foil cards out of some of these buckets to be very lucrative later on down the line. So on Friday, a lot of us went to Card Kingdom and bought our stuff from the regular set, and then TCG Player to buy our uh, old border cards. And I didn't pick up a lot from the old border stuff. I picked up stuff that was storm-related because that's the old border stuff I want. But there still exists cards, like you said, Dovin's Veto. I think Dreadhorde Arcanist is in a good spot to pick up. I think Dismember yep. and Path might be a little underserved in terms of price, especially because Dismember is essentially a colorless card and Path is EDH playable. And yep. you know, Panharmonicon is like $10, $11 for the old frame, which you know, I, I don't know if that price is correct long term. And generally speaking, Panharmonicon has always held a very reliable EDH uh, forward price, but that still seems low to me. And it's always worth the investigation for cards like this. And it's not just like, oh, this card seems underpriced. Let me buy it. It's like, okay, this card seems underpriced. I need to cross-reference this with what's going on. The reason I bought the cards that I did from Card Kingdom was because as I was checking prices there, I was also checking playability data from EDHREC and cost of the the primary set and any supplemental printings of those cards. And anywhere I saw a delta of, you know, 2x or more, I... I bought from from Card Kingdom, yeah, because I thought that was underserved. And and similarly, it went the other way when I was looking at uh, the old border stuff. The price on Card Kingdom, if that was two X for Past in Flames, you know, then there was an easy scoop from a specific vendor 
on TCG players. Similarly, I picked up Cranial Plating and what was my non-EDH card? Uh, Repeal. Uh, Repeal. Oh, yeah. Because that card, I, I have everything lined up for Legacy and Vintage Storm and Repeal is the card that floats through, right? And then Crystal Shard, because that's a card I wanted to, wanted to have a bunch of copies of for EDH and the Delta between uh, original printing and uh, Old Border was enough for me to just move in and the, del- uh, the Delta between Card Kingdom and TCG Player also reaffirmed that decision. And Card Kingdom has almost repriced everything by now, by the time this cast goes live, but TCG Player is still constantly reloading and while the prices are shifting up to expi- expected price points for things like Pact of Negation, which is main set, a lot of the old border stuff really has not shifted that far because people are kind of like locked in and honed in on these prices because there are large vendors anchoring these numbers like we've talked about before and i think this is your weekend of opportunity and that might extend for the next week but i don't think it's going to last that much longer if what we're hearing about the set is correct and if the restock or not the restock sorry if the initial product load on amazon that we saw was actually incorrect and they actually over allocated themselves which means the the number they were displaying and what they were hiding was not what they got then we can, and there is only one print run of this, then we can expect everything to float up. And I think action on these cards is going to happen sooner rather than later. And it is time you start looking at the low-hanging fruit <clears throat> if you want playables and if you want uh, items that are financial vehicles. Yep. So, you know, all this was basically behind the scenes going on when you and I were talking about this during the week. And yeah. like I said, to me, it all just kind of hit really obviously when I was looking at this. It was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense now that I can see these numbers. And it's no longer just this you know, theory, I can put it into practice and it makes exactly once I can see it and visualize it and understand my data points, it makes a lot more sense to me. And I hope, you know, now a lot of this makes sense to people who are listening because you can see these numbers in front of you. You'll see them change over the next couple of days and you can say, okay, Hey, this is shifting. This isn't, I need to move in here or I need to uh, change what I'm doing, get out of this and move into this. Yep. So I think it, it, it's a good call overall. And I, I expect we'll see and report back on these uh, for, a while to come it'll be interesting definitely i i think these are effectively especially the foils the new masterpiece and that's what we're looking at in yep. terms of price yeah so you know you'll have some duds obviously but you'll have a lot of hits oh absolutely um, and even the duds will be worth money exactly because it's old border and you're not going to get another old border reprinting until they do either time spiral remastered remastered or if they do more remastered sets and this becomes the normal we're not really sure in any direction because like we mentioned before this is the first remastered set they've officially done in paper and of all the actual paper sets they've done after the border change away from this old one they've never gone to old border outside of time spiral set itself they have never redone those old borders in a primary set yeah it's kind of tbd on this um, but before we head out, the, the last thing I want to mention is this week we got a little more insight into the timelines of what's coming up this year and the structure of products overall. And something that we've been talking about, especially in regards to picks, is Innistrad Vampires and Innistrad Werewolves. When we displayed the product list uh, last summer when Watsi reported on it, Werewolves and Vampires straddled the timeline one on top one on bottom but almost directly above one another this past week we actually got the set timelines for the rest of the year and we've linked that on twitter and it's in the in the discord channel there is a month difference between the release of the sets where uh, werewolves comes first vampires comes second what we do not know is whether or not vampires is going to actually be a standard legal set or is just going to be a supplemental vampire based product we do not know that yet so talking about supplementals this week and then moving forward that doesn't really come up in conversation because it is still up in the air i do not believe that mara or anybody else has really come forward and said hey this is a supplemental set or this is an extension off a primary or hey this will be standard legal but it's going to be uh lcg style where you can buy a living card game where you buy a product that's got everything We, we know really nothing about this product on the whole we just got a descriptor which basically says hey it's a vampire wedding and yeah. that's about it so we team can, edward team jacob yeah well i mean for the vampire product as a whole it's just like well what do you do you, you we 
we have expectations. It's a vampire wedding, so we might not see Blade of the Blood Chief, like we mentioned before. We might not yeah. see Vampire Nocturnus. We might not see this or that. We'll probably see uh, Edgar Markov show up if it's a vampire wedding. Maybe not Lord, yeah. you know, like the like the commander printing. And we might not see yeah. um, Soren Markov show up like we've known Soren before. We might see a new Soren. We might not. There's a lot we don't know around this product. And it's something we're definitely going to keep, going to keep an eye on because it could represent an interesting... Uh, space in the in the timeline as a whole. A lot of people expect it to just be a Q4 sale, just to help increase numbers overall. But that still doesn't speak to whether it's main set supplemental or something we uh, have yet to see. But that's where that product lies, and it just kind of came at us really quick at, at the end of the week, and thus because we were short on information, we didn't want to really bring it up during the main cast. So we'll be sure to report back as we know, because it will affect you know everything we talk about once we know. But that aside, I think we're good for this week, right? I'm Gucci. Perfect. So, you know, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, YouTube, uh, not SoundCloud, but Stitcher, Audible. Yes. Yeah. Well, I missed Audible last week. Uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. I feel like I'm still missing one. But outside of that, you know, you can reach us anywhere there. You can find the the podcast almost everywhere there. Um, You know, we're always... You know, taking questions wherever we got a lot of questions this week in in, uh, in our Discord about supplemental products and Time Spiral as a whole. It was a, a blast talking with people about this product and kind of you know swung the direction of the cast this week. So if there's anything you want to ask, hit us up there. Um, you know, we're, we're always quick to respond. We try and get to all our YouTube comments, so we're well, a little slower there. But other than that, yeah, you know, sorry. That, yeah, we're we're free to talk, chat whenever. Now, you can find me directly at Halt I Am Reptar on Twitter. They can find you at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week.